You're listening to Weird Medicine with Dr. Steve on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. I've got diphtheria crushing my esophagus. I've got Ebola virus dripping from my nose. I've got the leprosy of the heart valve exacerbating my incredible woes. I want to take my brain out and blast it with the wave, an ultrasonic echographic and a pulsating shave. I want a magic pill for my ailments, the health equivalent of Citizen Kane. And if I don't get it now in the tablet, I think I'm doomed and I'll have to go insane. I want a requiem for my disease, so I'm paging Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve! It's Weird Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of broadcast radio, now a podcast. I'm Dr. Steve, and this is a show for people who never listen to a medical show on the radio or the internet. If you have a question, you're embarrassed to take your regular medical provider. If you can't find an answer anywhere else, give us a call. 347-766-4323. That's 347-POOHEAD. If you're listening to us live, the number is 754-227-3647. That's 754-DOUBLE-DEUCE-PENIS. Follow us on Twitter at Weird Medicine, at Lady Diagnosis, at Dr. Scott WM, and at WM the Intern. Visit our website at WeirdMedicine.com for podcast, medical news, and stuff you can buy. Or go to our merchandise store, CafePress.com slash Weird Medicine. Most importantly, we are not your medical providers. Take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking over with your doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, pharmacist, chiropractor, acupuncturist. Yoga master, physical therapist, or whatever. All right, very good. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't surmised, I'm here by myself today. And uh, um, Dr. Scott and the rest of the crew will be here uh, next week. Don't forget to check out stuff.drsteve.com. Please use that link, stuff.drsteve.com. Whenever you go on and go shopping on the Internet, it takes you uh, – to a uh, click-through page where you can click through to go to Amazon or you can scroll down and look at different products that we've talked about on this show, including one that saved my butt recently, literally and figuratively, and that was uh, IbiGuard, um, which is enteric-coated um, uh, peppermint oil. And uh, I came back from Hawaii with a raging uh, – um, uh, oh, feel sorry for me. I came back from Hawaii, but with a raging uh, case of tourista, which fortunately did not really bother me until I got back. And um, I was, um, you know, basically just having liquid stool. And I took some of that IbiGuard. I also took some other things, but uh, that really helped with the abdominal pain and the cramping and stuff. Uh, it's a topical. Uh, anti-inflammatory at the level of the surface of the bowel, and I was very pleased with that. So you can get it at stuff.drsteve.com. By the way, if you have ongoing abdominal pain or chronic diarrhea or something like that, don't go to and just treat it yourself on Amazon. Go to uh, your uh, primary care provider and maybe get a referral to a gastroenterologist. But in the meantime um, – uh, you can go to stuff.drsteve.com, and there's also other stuff there too, uh, hence the name 
stuff.drsteve.com. Don't forget tweakedaudio.com, offer code FLUID. It's a Tennessee business. Had no idea until recently. Using offer code FLUID, you get 33% off the best earbuds for the price on the market and the best customer service anywhere. And Dr. Scott, even though he's not here, will plug his website, simplyherbals.net. I'm telling you, uh, during um, allergy season, I live on his Simply Herbal Sinus Rinse, and it actually is very good. As much shit as I give him when he's here, when he's not here, I will have to give him props for that. Uh, If you would like archives of the show and get them quick – because something may be happening where all of the shows go away. I'm hoping not, but I'll tell you about that as time goes on. Uh, Go to premium.drsteve.com. Just download them all. And then uh, if you want to cancel your uh, subscription, feel free. Um, uh, But premium.drsteve.com. And if you use that, uh, I found the easiest way to listen to this show if you've got a premium membership, if you want to go back and listen to old shows, is to use the Weird Medicine app, which you can get at uh, iTunes or Google Play Store. So anyway, all right. Um, all right. So I don't have anything for you today other than uh, let's take some phone calls. Number one thing, don't take advice from some asshole on the radio. Hey, Dr. Steve. Brian from New Hampshire. Hey, Brian. I was wondering about that cool sculpting, I think it's called, to get rid of fat. I mean, can you get the same results with some ice packs? How does that stuff work? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, it, cool sculpting is a misnomer. I, you know, that, that's not how it works. It's not cool. It's cold as shit. Uh, what they do is um, they uh, deliver precisely controlled, hopefully, um, Cooling, yes, okay, technically it's cooling. You're taking it from one temperature and dropping the temperature, but you're, you know, it just sounds so nice and uh, um, uh, uh, just nice and smooth and easy when you call it cool sculpting. But what you're really doing is you're freezing fat cells. And uh, so it's cryolipolysis is the uh, proper name for it. Of course, you couldn't sell that to anybody. Well, you know, we're, we do cryolipolysis. It's like, you know, not on me or not, but cool sculpting. Now, that sounds awesome. So what you do is you have a probe and it's and it uh, you can dial the uh, temperature down. And if you know what you're doing, you can uh, freeze fat cells where people don't want them. They die. And then when they die, um, that area will uh, – the body will eventually come in and um, clean up that area and leave it um, less prominent than it was before. Uh, The way that they discovered this was um, interesting that there was some uh, – scientists noted that kids that ate a lot of popsicles got dimples in their cheeks. And they hypothesized that these kids were freezing – the uh, fat cells in their cheeks and the fat cells were dying and they got a depression there. And in fact, uh, that's what it was. So um, uh, they got this idea that uh, cold can target fat cells without uh, hurting the uh, skin or the surrounding tissue. Now, that's true if it's done properly. So anyway, it's, um, uh, you know, the cells die off and then the body knows when cells die and it comes in and cleans up the mess and uh, leaves less volume there. So 
Um, this is done a lot. Uh, there are a lot of people that are doing it. It's uh, relatively well accepted at this point. And um, it's totally fine. But no, you can't. I, I mean, you could do it with ice packs, I guess, if they were cold enough. And uh, But you would really be giving yourself frostbite, which is not the, uh, the purpose of this. So do not try this at home. This needs to be done by medical professionals with the correct equipment. And you can't save yourself a grand by um, uh, just laying ice packs on your abdomen. All right? Okay. Um, I, I love how on their website they say it's a holistic approach to your body sculpting transformation. Not sure how it's holistic in the definition that we usually use. Holistic, you know, a vegan diet to lose the fat would be a holistic approach. Uh, this seems more like a technological approach, but anyway, there you go. All right. A doctor or the grocery store what? pharmacy. What? Right. Hey, Doctor Steve. Hey, I was wondering when when does the new uh, flu shot come available? Um, is it is it always in the fall, or should I get it um, now in the summertime, or and also, I was wondering, it doesn't matter if I go to my doctor or the grocery store pharmacy or a quick care clinic or even um, at the fire department. Are they all the same? Thank you. Yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, the new influenza vaccine should be out sometime in uh, September, I think. And the way that this works, the reason it comes out in the fall is because influenza or season tends to run in the fall, winter, and early spring in the United States. And um, they, the, the vaccine makers need time to figure out what um, strains of um, influenza we should be protecting against. So the way they do that is they look at what's going on in the uh, southern hemisphere during uh, – um, our summer, which is their winter, and see, well, what's going on down there? And uh, when they uh, identify these strains that are sort of mutating and working their way around the world, uh, they, they can make a prediction that this is what we're going to see in the northern hemisphere uh, during our flu season. Now, sometimes they nail it. Other times they miss it miserably. One year, I think it was only 6% effective uh, at preventing influenza, but it still was reasonably effective for preventing death and hospitalization. So we still uh, recommend it. The last two years in a row, we've not had flu mist. That's my other favorite influenza vaccine. It's a live attenuated virus uh, where they, that they spray up your nose and you actually um, – it you know, multiplies just like any other virus and you get a mild form of <clears throat> this influenza that you can also spread to other people. So it will spread through the population, protecting them from the the naughty influenza strains. And, um, uh, you know, my ki I, I can't get it because I, I think the cutoff age is 50 for that. And it's considered, quote unquote, uh, too risky for people over my age. That just means they didn't test it. In people my age, or they did, and there were problems. One or the other, uh, I think it's the former. And um, uh, but I would get it for my kids, and my kids, being nasty kids, would uh, you know tra easily transmit it to me uh, by uh, sticking their finger in their nose and then not washing their hands and handing something to me, 
and uh, then I would pick it up on my hands and um, you know and and get it that way. So, by the way, that's called fomite transmission when you um, sneeze into your hand, uh, and then like a disgusting person, don't wash your hands afterward, and uh, then uh, open a door with a doorknob, and then leave. S- snot and viruses behind and someone else touches that door and gets the disease. That's called a fomite transmission. Uh, uh, Fomite being an inanimate object that can harbor um, uh, an infectious agent for some period of time. But anyway, uh, I digress. The – oh, hell, where was I? And I don't have Dr. Scott here to tell me where the hell I was. Um uh, oh yeah, the uh, flu mist. So, uh, but the last two years it's been no good, so they didn't even bring it out. Um, this year we're hoping it's a good vaccine. We always hope for that. You know, it would be great. Uh, would be to have one vaccine for all influenza strains. You say, well, why do we have to get a vaccine every year if you can only get uh, you know each virus once? Well, the stupid thing keeps mutating. And influenza is really easy to mutate. If you've um, uh, ever seen that movie Contagion, I highly recommend that you do. Uh, That virus uh, passed through a bat to a pig and then mutated enough to where uh, humans could get it, and it was a bad one in that particular scenario. And Steven Soderbergh, I mean, there's no plot to that movie. It's just what would happen if we got an influenza strain that became pandemic and killed people? Uh, like the um, uh, 1918 uh, swine flu did, or the so-called Spanish flu. They blamed it on the Spaniards. Um, Back then, of course, we did not have ventilators and we didn't have Tamiflu. We didn't have vaccines. So uh, that particular strain of influenza, if it hit us now, probably wouldn't do nearly as much damage as it did back then when it killed 1% of the world's population. So 10% of all people in the world are estimated to have gotten that form of influenza, which, by the way, means 90% didn't. So the vast, vast majority of people didn't get it. But when you're talking about 10% of the population, that's a huge number. Even back then when there was, what, a billion people on earth, maybe 2 billion. Um, So 10% got it. And um, 10% of those people died. So uh, any uh, virus that came through that had a 10% mortality rate, that's huge. So uh, it was pretty scary. But again, no vaccines, no Tamiflu, no ventilators or you know respirators back then. So uh, uh, it, it was a bad one. But I, <clears throat> I really do believe if that particular strain came through today, it wouldn't cause nearly the havoc. But what if we got an avian flu that was a problem? Again, hopefully um, we could uh, rapidly develop a vaccine, hopefully in time to uh, uh, save lives. And uh, we do have antivirals that uh, uh, may be of some use. And – we have better supportive care now than we did. Uh, ha- having said that, get your damn flu shot. Flu vaccine saves lives. Uh, on our podcast, we're going to have um, Richard David Smith, who uh, survived an episode of influenza that nearly killed him. And uh, if you're a listener to our podcast, 
We had uh, Barry the Blade, who was our trucker duty uh, uh, correspondent, who got us turned on to the whole idea of how truckers move their bowels when they're over the road. Uh, and it started a whole thing. Well, sadly, he died from swine flu that year. And we had a couple other people who have, you know, listeners of ours, people who called in or friends of ours who have passed away from influenza. So please get your influenza vaccine when it's ready. And if they have flu missed this year, vaccinate your kids. And uh, we will um, uh, get um, a s- secondary benefit from that. Uh, because the adults, even if, if you're in my age group and you're not allowed to get flu mist, you still get it anyway. It's kind of a dirty little secret that that, that particular influenza is, is um, uh, transmissible. Now, people will say, well, I, I don't take the influenza vaccine because last time I did it, I got the flu from it. And that's in, completely incorrect. You cannot get influenza from the influenza vaccine shot. It is a killed vaccine. As a matter of fact, it's not even killed. It was never alive. You're just using um, certain uh, viral proteins that are uh, uh, grown in the laboratory and uh, injecting those and those, your body develops antibodies against those proteins. And uh, those happen to be on the surface of the influenza that you're hoping you get a, uh, you know, exposed to. And so you have immunity from it, but it's not the actual vaccine. It's or the actual uh, virus itself. So, but people swear that they got influenza from getting the flu vaccine. So this is why if you have, um, 400 million people in this country, and let's say only 10% of them get vaccinated. So you're talking 40 million people. So 40 million people over a, uh, uh, let's say, a five-month period. So hang on a second. Uh, That would be uh, 8 million people a month, right? So let's see what 8 million divided by 30 is. Alexa, what's 8 million divided by 30? 8 million divided by 30 rounds to 266,666.667. Okay, okay. All right, shut up. Shut the fuck up. So (laughs) on any day, around 250,000 people are getting vaccinated, right? Um, That's if only 10% of people get the vaccine. Uh, So I'm being very conservative with these numbers. Um, Now – of those 250,000 people on any one day, let's say 1% of those were going to get influenza on Wednesday. But uh, on, uh, they were, they've already been exposed. It's cooking in their body. They're going to get it on Wednesday. And let's say another uh, 1% of those uh, uh, got the vaccine on Monday. So I'm just ratcheting these numbers way down. So about 250 people every day uh, will uh, uh, come down with influenza two days after they got the flu vaccine, right? And uh, 250 times 30 times five months, that's a bunch of people. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence out there that people got influenza vaccine and they got the flu two days later. And it was because they were going to get it anyway, and they didn't get vaccinated in time. That's all it is. And, um, you know, it's a selection bias. It's a uh, bias of, uh, you know, small results stemming from large numbers, those kinds of things. 
and uh, it is a, it's just fallacious, but it's, you cannot convince those people that the flu shot didn't give them influenza unless they're willing to listen to uh, logic and uh, delve into the science of it, and they were just unlucky. So uh, now you can get influenza from – as a matter of fact, you're intended to get influenza from the flu mist vaccine. That's the whole purpose of it. Uh, but again, the last two years, we haven't had that. Now, uh, I started talking about this. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had one vaccine for all of influenza? And in fact, um, we're, that's being worked on now, a universal influenza vaccine. So, you know, you get your measles vaccine. Uh, you get it what once or twice, whatever the number is. Uh, and um, there are a smallpox vaccine. When we used to get it, we got it once. And uh, it was lifelong immunity, or we hoped it was anyway. Um, and um, if we could find one protein that's expressed on the surface of the influenza virus – that we could target with a single antibody, then we could ha- use one uh, vaccine, and, uh, and we'd never need any. We could we could absolutely eradicate influenza in this world because there are very um, there are asymptomatic carriers of of influenza, but they don't last very long. Is that now? Why is that important? Well, uh, um, the reason we were able to eradicate smallpox was there were no asymptomatic carriers and other people in other words people that had it that were spreading it to other people like typhoid mary uh, but that didn't have symptoms of smallpox uh, if they were transmitting it to somebody else they had smallpox and you could tell just by looking at them so rather than uh, vaccinate everyone in the whole wide world what they did was they went to places where there were smallpox outbreaks and just vaccinated people around those people. So you would find someone with smallpox, vaccinate everyone they had came in contact with and uh, keep those people from getting smallpox or transmitting it to somebody else. And uh, the last case of smallpox was in, I believe, Somalia in, I believe, 1997 or 1987 maybe. And uh, it was declared eradicated three years later when we didn't have any more cases of smallpox. So, so that's how you would do that. Now, with influenza, people can carry the or transmit the virus before they become sick, but not for very long. So we could, in theory, uh, use a universal vaccine, try to get a lot of herd immunity, as many people as we can. Uh, vaccinated, and then when somebody comes down with a case, vaccinate everyone around them, and within um, uh, you know maybe a decade, we might be able to eradicate the influenza virus from this world. And uh, yeah, it would be extinct. We'll keep it in the lab just in case we find out our evolution is tagged to to uh, <laughs> to uh, influenza um, uh, outbreaks or something. But you know, and uh, and just to make sure that somebody can go ahead and release it and ruin everything a uh, hundred years from now, um, if things uh, really go south in this world. So, I, you know, smallpox exists in uh, laboratories, frozen uh, all over the place. They've we have it. The Soviets have it. Um, hopefully nobody ever weaponizes it. Um, but you know, when you make something extinct, you you kind of feel weird just saying it's gone forever. Uh, you know, we want to have some some record of it. I think having a DNA 
record so that we could make it again if we really had needed it for some reason uh, would be good enough. But uh, apparently they like freezing these viruses and keeping around just so somebody could steal them and cause problems. But anyway, that's sort of my treatise on the influenza vaccine and vaccines in general. And, uh, uh, you know, please get your flu vaccine. It does save lives. I don't want any more weird weird medicine listeners dying from influenza for no good reason. Okay. All right. Talk to your primary about it. Oh, and the other thing that he asked was, um, is it okay to get it from the pharmacy or the uh, fire department? It's all the same. It's all the same uh, vaccine. They all cover the same viruses, so it's fine. I've, uh, I don't go to my primary care anymore to get my vaccines. I go straight to the pharmacy because the pharmacists are allowed to give them, and um, uh, it's just a lot easier. So there you go. All right. Hey, Dr. Steve. I called you probably like two months ago and asked you about the ketogenic diet. And uh, with that call, I had asked about uh, as far as eating uh, the green leafy vegetables and using yeah, okay, let me get everybody on the same page. So we've talked about ketogenic diets multiple times here and on the podcast. And um, a lot of people have this idea that the ketogenic diet is supposed to be all, the all-meat diet or the meat, bacon, and mayonnaise diet. And uh, those, if you do that, it will be ketogenic in the sense that your uh, body will burn fat because you're malnourished, but that is not a healthy ketogenic diet. Uh, I, I guess I should give you some background on ketogenic diet. So the uh, classic ketogenic diet uh, was um, the Atkins diet. Now, why is it called ketogenic? Well, so your body stores carbohydrates in muscle tissue and in the liver in the form of a uh, a sort of starch, which is a nothing more than sugar molecules, all t- all stretched or um, not stretched, but stitched together, and uh, it's called glycogen. And so, glycogen is in the liver and in the muscle tissue. If you've ever heard of somebody that was a marathon runner, when they hit the wall, they've run out of glycogen, and uh, so it's a source of ready energy. And when you uh, eat carbohydrates, particularly, you will store leftover glucose in the form of glycogen. And when you've filled those stores up, then the next thing you're going to do is start laying down fat. So uh, if you eat a ketogenic diet, what you're doing is you're eating a low-carbohydrate diet. So you are having to burn all of the glycogen in stores in your body, in the muscle and in the uh, liver particularly. And uh, when I say all, you know, it's a relative term. It's you're you're burning up most of them. When you stop being able to burn glycogen readily, you've got two other sources of um, energy that you can tap. One are fat cells, and one are muscle cells. And we don't want to burn muscle cells uh, to to uh, make energy. That means we're starving. So uh, if you eat plenty of protein. You will not burn um, uh, muscle tissue for energy. So you will preferentially burn fat. And when you burn fat, when fat starts to break down to make energy for the body's you know, daily routine, uh, you will produce these things called ketone bodies. It's just a byproduct of fat uh, destruction or lipolysis. 
And uh, you can detect those in the urine. If you get enough of them, you can actually smell them. They smell kind of fruity. And, um, uh, you know, if you have, if you ever had a friend who was type 1 diabetic and they went through diabetic ketoacidosis, you could smell that sort of fruity uh, uh, aroma on their uh, breath and you could kind of get an idea that they were going through uh, diabetic ketoacidosis besides the fact they were sick as hell and probably in the intensive care unit. But anyway, so – uh, when you so so we're eating a low carbohydrate diet, getting plenty of protein in, so we are no longer burning carbohydrates, but we're not burning muscle tissue. We have to burn fat, and that is the basis of the ketogenic diet uh, for weight loss. Now it does other things as well. Um, ketogenic diets have been found to uh, be um, um, good for di- type two diabetics. Because they uh, their blood sugars will normalize many times their um, um, their uh, sensitivity to insulin will increase and so they'll they will be uh, uh, more um, glucose tolerant instead of glucose intolerant and uh, there are some benefits on uh, parameters regarding metabolic syndrome which are, are um, parameters high blood pressure, uh, high triglycerides, uh, glucose intolerance, those kinds of things that increase people's risk of heart attack and stroke. Now, um, the the correct ketogenic diet is a balanced diet that has lots of green leafy vegetables and lean animal protein. Now, you can have some fat because fat is not the enemy. Eating fat isn't the enemy. Carbohydrates are the enemy. There was a study that just came out recently that showed people on a very, very low carbohydrate diet may be at slightly increased risk of all-cause mortality. In other words, people on a moderately low uh, um, uh, cholesterol diet might live 80 years. I'm just giving you some numbers. I don't know what the actual numbers were in the study because I wasn't planning on talking about this today, but uh, we will on uh, this week's podcast. Uh, But let's say it's 80 years. Uh, People who are on the very, very lowest end might live 79 years and, uh, um, you know, other people – who are on high carbohydrate diet might also be around 79 years. So it was a, if, if I remember correctly, it was about a one-year swing. And I would really want to see the evidence on this and study it to see if it was truly statistically significant and uh, whether I'm going to radically change my lifestyle uh, for a one-year swing that may not even be real as uh, a whole nother – that's topic of a whole nother show. But uh, green leafy vegetables – and uh, lean animal protein uh, will result in uh, that the burning of fat uh, over time. And I would do this with uh, a nutritionist or at least read a decent book about it. Don't just go on the web or YouTube. Read a book. Learn about it so that you know what you're doing. And uh, um, very many people have found that to be very successful. And the data on it is pretty good. Um, uh, it's gotten, you know, at one time the nutritionists were like, oh, they were horrified by a low carb diet. Uh, and, uh, over time, uh, the data in the literature has come around to show that the low carbohydrate diet is actually a pretty healthy diet for you. And, uh, uh, 
may lead to some improvement in, in those parameters that I already mentioned. So anyway, let's finish this guy's talk. In Nutribullet. Uh, my question is now, like I've been using the Nutribullet and everything. Love it. Okay, the other thing that he was talking about was the difference between eating um, vegetables and uh, masticating them in a Nutribullet versus juicing. So I'm not a fan of juicing. I bought a juicer and I used it one time and I threw it away. Uh, I, you put a bunch of vegetables in there and all the fiber and all the good stuff goes into the back. And then you get this sort of watery concoction that um, it really has very little nutritional value. And then the juicers out there are screaming at the radio, sorry, it's true. Uh, uh, it, it just depends on how you're using it. I mean, juice has a place in uh, in a healthy diet. but uh, and, um, and then the damn thing is impossible to clean. That was my issue with it. Uh, you get there's this screen in there, and then just trying to get all the junk out of it, so that you didn't have dried vegetable matter in it next time you used it, kind of just drove me crazy. I've got a little bit of OCD, so that made me wacky. Um, but so, but I like the Nutribullet uh, because you get all of the nutrition, a hundred percent of the nutrition from whatever thing you put in there. So, for example, if you like eating chia seeds, well, if you're putting them in your muffins, you're probably uh, dige actually digesting less than 10% of those. But if you put them in a Nutribullet, uh, you'll get almost 100% of it if that's what you want. Um, uh, same thing with spinach. You know, if you just chew up spinach, we're just terrible at chewing things up and you end up, uh, you know, defecating whole stems and leaves and stuff like that that never quite got fully digested. Whereas if you put it in the Nutribullet and uh, pulse it um, effectively, you're basically able to uh, uh, digest all of the nutrition that's in that those leaves because it's all broken up and liquefied, uh, but not juiced. So you're not losing all that good stuff that went to the back of the juicer. So uh, so that's, that's what we were talking about. Um, but uh, oftentimes when I'm taking a dump, uh, like my crap is like dark green, which I understand probably isn't a problem. But I was curious, like a lot of times when I eat salads and stuff too, like I'll see like leaves of like spinach and stuff. Yeah, there you I go. I was curious, does that mean like my body's not correctly absorbing? No, it's got nothing to do with that. It means you're not correctly chewing up your food. <laughs> and uh, when our human bodies are not able to digest and break down cellulose. So, and it, it isn't easy to break down. That's why um, goats and cows and other ruminants have to have four stomachs, and they have to chew their cud. So, how do they how do they live on grass when we can't? Well, they chew it up, and they swallow it, and it goes into this first stomach, and then they regurgitate it back up after it gets some uh, digestive juices and some enzymes in there, and you can see them just sitting there. Uh, uh, chewing when they haven't eaten anything. Well, they're just bjorking this stuff up, throwing up into their mouth, so to speak, and uh, chewing it uh, to get even more um, uh, uh, mechanical trauma to it. Then it has to pass through these four stomachs for it to uh, be fully digested. And even then, my understanding is that cow, cow patties are, uh, um, you know, still significant fraction of it is undigested uh, um, plant matter. 
to the to the point where you can make cow food out of cow turds. Crazy. Um, but anyway, so yes, it's it, it has nothing to do with your. Uh, that like that there's something wrong with you that you're not able to somehow break down and absorb these leaves that you haven't chewed all the way. Uh, it's just purely part of the uh, human condition that we're not able to do that. The vegetables or what? Uh, let me know. Thanks. Okay. Oh, okay. That's the end. So, um, yeah, and the green. Okay, there's two things that can make your stool green. One is if you eat blue food dye. And where do you see blue food dye? Not in most of foods that adults eat, but there's a lot of blue food dye in stuff that kids eat because, God forbid, they eat something that doesn't have a bright, crazy color. And, you know, the kids don't care. It's the adults that are buying it, you know, are are attracted to this for kids, you know, eating green cereal and uh, – Blue yogurt and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> it's all blue. It's all food dye. And uh, for whatever reason, blue food dye does not break down in the human stomach or in the GI tract anywhere. And it will pass through into from the stomach into the small intestine where it's mixed with bile. Bile's yellow. And blue plus yellow equals a very beautiful emerald green. And I know this from personal experience. Because I was feeding my kid um, uh, when he was a baby, uh, feeding him yogurt, and it was kids' yogurt, and it was blue, and uh, um, and then he, <laughs> I changed his diaper, and the turd that was in there, I'm telling you, it was the most beautiful emerald, deep dark emerald green, like emerald uh, green velvet. It was absolutely a beautiful color. And which was a weird juxtaposition because it was a turd, you know, it was disgusting, but it really was beautiful in its uh, in, a, in the color. And then I realized, you know, I'm feeding my kid this stuff. God knows what it's doing to him. Probably nothing. It's probably totally inert. It certainly passed through him unchanged, but there was no reason for it. So I started uh, feeding him, you know, regular things that didn't have to have all those wacky colors. And kids cereal, same thing uh, that. Um, there's um, oh oh and you know what else did it? They used blue food dye in these Halloween cheeseburgers. I can't remember which fast food chain had them, and the the bun was black, but they used blue food dye to accomplish that. And there was a lot of it in there, and everybody was uh, uh, turding out these uh, um, uh, emerald green logs. So. So anyway, so blue food diet. But the other way that you can get a green stool is to eat lots of green leafy vegetables, particularly uh, spinach. So uh, if you uh, get over a certain threshold, uh, that the body just can't deal with that chlorophyll and it passes through uh, unmolested and it uh, mixes uh, with the stool and gives you a nice green stool. It's not as pretty as the um, uh, blue food dye green stools because that is fully admixed. You get the nice blue dye with the uh, yellow bile, and it totally mixes in with everything. The the green you're getting from eating green leafy vegetables is basically just undigested vegetable matter, so it's not as well homogenized into the stool, so it's not that beautiful green color anyway. All right. <clears throat> Como esta, Dr. Steve? Como esta, uh, So here, 
had two questions. Okay. Um, one being, is there anything medically tied to when you look at the sun and it helps you sneeze? Yeah. I had a, a guy that I knew everything, went to college, a private college, and he said there isn't. I believe him by only because <clears throat> medically it might have been. But I swear to God, anybody I know and probably yourself, bright things make you sneeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's for real uh, for some people. Um, there are some people who will get a histamine response, well, a histaminic response, in other words, a release of histamine. You go, well, what's histamine? I've heard of that. Um, well, it's because you take antihistamines in uh, uh, allergy season, right? So Benadryl is an antihistamine. Um, uh, Allegra, Zyrtec, those things are all antihistamines. So when you block histamine, you're blocking that response that's causing irritation in the nose, increased mucus production, uh, dilation of the um, uh, blood vessels that causes nasal congestion, all that stuff. So there are some people that will get histamine response not only to allergens but to changes in environmental uh, factors like um, uh, sunlight or cold. There are some people walk out in the cold and they'll start sneezing or they'll get hives. Hives is just a histaminic response of the skin. Uh, and other people will get solar urticaria, which is they walk outside and all of a sudden they get hives on their skin. Or they may walk outside and get exposed to sunlight. Uh, maybe it's heat. It may not be – it would be an interesting experiment. It would be easy to do to determine whether it was sunlight or change in temperature, but they'll start sneezing. So how would we determine whether it was sunlight or a change in temperature? Well, the main component of sunlight, of course, is ultraviolet light. Uh, so you would what you would do is uh, create a room where you could bathe it with ultraviolet A and B and white light, but not heat. And that's pretty easy to do. And uh, see if they start sneezing, and then uh, don't, and then put them back in regular light, and just crank up the heat and see if they start sneezing. That's easy to do too with uh, using uh, infrared, uh, and uh, that way you could determine whether it's change in temperature or a change in exposure to ultraviolet light that's doing it. Anyway, um, uh, so yes, that's a real thing. So the, your friends who told you that that was bullshit. They were stupid. So we'll give them one. All right. Let's see here. Hey, uh, I have a weird one for you. This morning I woke up with a hole in the back of my throat. Oh, you did. It looks like there's a puncture, <laughs> uh, no blood, and um, I. it's not sensitive to anything spicy. I. I uh, literally just had a ghost pepper and no pain from it from that. Just feels like a weird, uh, like a weird stinging hole back there. Uh, wife took a picture of it and there's definitely a hole back there, a small one. Looks like hmm. uh, about the diameter of a pencil lead, um, but don't know what it is. You can get fooled back there. You look back there and you see things and, uh, uh, I've seen people say that, oh, you know, I've got some sort of weird exudate back there. It was just light shining off the back of the throat because it's shinier back there than you'd think. 
And, uh, you know, you could have had some microscopic or, you know, micro trauma to that area and it could be duller than the other part and your eye is fooling you into thinking it's a hole. If it's truly a hole, if you can see depth to it, I would get that checked out because that's not normal. Now, what other holes are there in your throat? Because you're not telling me where it is. So um, it, it, there are people who will look in there in their mouth and they, uh, you know, because they've never looked in there before. And they'll see uh, tonsillar crypts, and they've never noticed them before because they never looked, and uh, and that can really, you know, scare them, and uh, to enough to seek um, medical evaluation. Uh, people can have uh, where their tonsils used to be in the little pillars, uh, the tonsillar uh, the area where the tonsils used to be, uh, if you look at it just right, can look like a hole on the back side of your throat. Um, I've seen people say, well, I've got these giant lymph nodes in on the back of my tongue, and those are just the giant papillae, uh, which are um, you know normal fu- features in the back of your tongue. And then the other thing you could be seeing are adenoids, which would be unusual to be able to see them, but if you open your mouth wide enough and if your anatomy is a little weird – uh, you may see the uh, opening of the eustachian tube that's surrounded by the adenoids. And adenoids are just basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, immune tissue like the tonsils that surround the eustachian tube. The eustachian tube being the tube that transmits air pressure from the middle ear out to the real world. And it's right behind the um, – or in the back part of the throat just – where the uh, soft palate is. So most of the time you can't see it. But if you're really able to lift up your small palate, you, you may be able to see that. That may be all it is. Uh, I would just get this looked at. If you really think you've got a hole in your throat that needs to be looked at and, uh, and let me know what they find. I'm betting it's uh, the opening of the eustachian tube, but I could be all wet. So, all right. Hey, Dr. Steve, can you explain how a drug gets its name from the Latin term to the common name to the street name? I was just wondering if there's think tanks that come up with these or if there's any rhyme or reason to what um, what their names. I always wondered that. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Um, it is crazy. And there are um, uh, there's the chemical name, which could be well. There's really four names. There's the chemical composition. It's not really a name. It's um, you know how many carbon atoms there are, how many hydrogen atoms there are, uh, etc. And uh, that could be in the form of like C twelve H twenty six O three S Two, something like that. And then uh, you can have a drug classification type name. And uh, that's sort of the um, – uh, oh, gosh, I can't think of the dang name of it. But like um, uh, na- oh, shit, uh, words like um, uh, uh, tofacitinib. That's an epidermal growth factor receptor, and it has NIB at the end. And so all of those things will have that. Uh, monoclonal antibodies 
will have MAB at the end of those. Statins will have statin at the end of theirs. And so they've agreed that certain chemical subtypes will have these sort of meta names. And then there's the trade name. So um, uh, uh, let me me think of one. Um, I'm just having a mental block right now. Uh, Okay. Um, How about this one? Okay, so... uh, Oxycodone is the um, sort of chemical name for a um, uh, an opioid analgesic, and it goes by the name OxyContin uh, or Roxycodone. OxyContin being the long-acting form, and Roxycodone. Uh, being the short-acting form, if you have oxycodone with acetaminophen, uh, that will, may be called Percocet where you are. So the Percocet being the trade name that they sell it under and oxycodone being the quote-unquote generic name. Um, so there are trade names that these companies market them under. And then there's an underlying set of names uh, that can uh, that will also uh, indicate this the same drug. So lovastatin is um, oh for God's sake, hang on a second. Um, atorvastatin is <laughs> why why am I having this problem? Is uh, Lipitor? Golly, and I know people are just. People who are on it are screaming at their. Uh, uh, I wasn't expecting to go this deep into this, so that's. Um, but so atorvastatin is um, uh, the generic term or a generic name for the drug we call Lipitor, and lovastatin is the generic name for the drug we call uh, Mevacor. Okay, so that was one of the first statin drugs, and we took, call them as a class statin drugs. And uh, yes, it's just a think tank. And the weird thing is now, so there used to be this drug called Prevacid, and it was Lansoprazole, and um, they they called it Prevacid because they were very clever because it prevents acid, right? Well, now the FDA said you cannot name something that. Um, uh, any name that talks to the benefits of the drug. So a name like Prevacid would no longer be allowed. They all have to be nonsense terms. So that's why you've seen all these weird names. Like there's some drug called Taltz. To me, that's just a goofy name for a drug. And uh, Opdivo, and there's a bunch of other weird ones. If you notice on these drug commercials, you'll see weirder and weirder names. And that's because the marketing people are trying to come up with names that, number one, haven't been used before. So they're not going to confuse people because when uh, pri- – uh, uh, let me see. What was it? Um, Prilosec came out. It wasn't called Prilosec. It was called Losec. This was back in the 80s. And uh, uh, Prilosec is a proton pump inhibitor. It was the first one that hit the market uh, for acid reflux, and it was called Losec. And apparently people got it confused with Lasix, when they, particularly when doctors wrote it with our crummy handwriting. And uh, uh, so people freaked out, and they said, well, we got to change it from Losec to Prilosec. So that's where Prilosec got its name. Um, uh, there's another one called Trintelix. 
that I think started out as a different name, uh, Brintelix, and then uh, Dexalon started as Capadex, and that was too close to something else. So uh, all of these drugs. Uh, so so the first thing they got to do, come up with a name that nobody's thought of before that isn't close enough to um, uh, some other drug. And then and it has to be a nonsense word, just nonsense syllables. So um, anyway, so yes, that's it's just all marketing. There there are exactly in every pharmaceutical corporation, uh, there's a think tank that comes up with drug names, and the goofier the better, apparently. All right. Hey, Doctor Steve, I have a question for Casey. Oh, well, uh, she's not here. If she could recommend a uh, face and hand SPF lotion um like a daily daily use for use uh, that we could buy it at um you know buy on amazon looking to spend maybe uh 30 bucks a month for okay uh well you can go to amazon or no i'm sorry stuff.drsteve.com as your amazon portal and uh i know my wife would recommend nivea uh, the the Nivea SPF cream um, because all of the supermodels use Nivea cream. Now, look, some of these supermodels you've seen on TV, they don't seem real bright, but they have genius IQs when it comes to skincare and stuff like that. They absolutely do, and they know the good stuff. And I believe to this day, Nivea is still one of the things that's at the top of their list, and they make a, a cream with an SPF, uh, so you can look for that. But anyway, yeah. Um, hey, before we go, I want to talk to you all about Blue Apron. You know, Blue Apron delivers farm-fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes right to your door. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and it achieves this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients and building a community of home chefs. We have had a blast with Blue Apron. Uh, we're cooking at home more. Uh, you don't waste anything. If it calls for one onion, you get one onion. If it calls for two tablespoons of, uh, I don't know, of, um, of you know, teriyaki sauce, you get two tablespoons of teriyaki sauce. Uh, you, you're not wasting. I used to buy bunches of radishes because you can't just buy one just to make a salad, use two radishes, throw them all away. So uh, the food that we make is fantastic. It's tasty. Um, it It's a lot healthier than what we're used to eating. And it's, it gives us a more varied diet. And I've learned some techniques that I never knew before, particularly the way that they cook salmon uh, by uh, uh, pan searing the uh, salmon uh, on a hot pan with oil with the skin down and you kind of make salmon bacon and then it cooks up and then you flip it over at the end, get the last little bit cooked and it's perfectly done every time. There's quick and easy recipe options with perfectly proportioned ingredients delivered right to your door. Uh, Makes it quick and easy and insanely tasty. Uh, You can skip the meal planning, get straight to cooking with Blue Apron. Uh, It saves you some trips to the grocery store as well. And uh, they've got some uh, uh, favorite grilling recipes, including seasonally in, uh, inspired ingredients and mouth-watering grilling options for summer, like chicken with barbecue sauce and juicy cheeseburgers with spicy slaw. There are chef-designed recipes and exciting partnerships like Bob's Burgers and MasterChef, which is a new thing. So check 
out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash medicine. That's blueapron.com slash medicine and get your first three meals free. This is an incredible deal. Three meals free. Blueapron.com slash medicine. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. I think that's it. I, well, I think I can do this one quickly. Hang on. Hey, Dr. Steve. This is Matt from Connecticut. My mother has cancer and is being treated with radiation and chemotherapy. No, I'm sorry to hear that, man. Uh, she has breast cancer. Yeah. And she is uh, not able to live where she was, so I am taking her in with me. And I have my kids every other weekend. And my ex-wife, in her infinite wisdom, has told me that her family doctor said that people who have gone through radiation cannot be in the same bed or share the same bed as people who have not gone through this because they are, quote, radiating radiation, unquote. I'm assuming my ex-wife is crazy. But I just want to hear it from you. Give yourself a bill. When my kids are not around, I'm assuming my mom can sleep wherever the fuck she wants to. So (laughs) let me know if you can. Thanks. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, this is, um, we need to clear this up. So uh, people with cancer who are getting chemotherapy and uh, radiation and surgery and stuff have enough problems without this kind of uh, misinformation floating around. Now, there are some forms of nuclear medicine treatments that render people somewhat radioactive. And uh, those are things like – uh, radioactive ablation of the thyroid where you're giving people radioactive iodine that gets incorporated in the thyroid and that kills it <clears throat> and some other things. The kind of radiation that she's getting is external beam radiation. This is where – and it, look, light is a form of radiation, right? So when we think of radiation, we're thinking radioactivity. But um, in fact, uh, the type of radiation that she's getting – it does it does not render her radioactive okay radioactivity comes when you have a heavy uh, atomic nucleus that breaks in and then emits uh or uh, for other reasons uh emits a uh, nucle- uh, neutron or an electron or an alpha particle which is basically a uh um, it's a hydrogen hydrogen uh, nucleus. So um, it would be a proton and a neutron. So a heavy oh, shit. Not, you know, I was a physicist, and now, I, but I'm old. Uh, alpha particle. Let's see. I'm sure I'm right about this, but now I'm I'm driving myself crazy. So yeah, it's a helium nucleus. Okay. And they originally regarded that as a ray, but it's really – it's a particle, subatomic particle. So um, 
But that's not what she's getting. She's getting some sort of photon therapy where they just rev up like, uh, you know, and, and ir- irradiate her. Bad word when we think about radiation with gamma rays or something like that. Uh, you can get um, protons as well. There's proton beam therapy. But none of these render the person radioactive in the sense that they are emitting radioactive particles that can be detected with a Geiger counter. Now, you can go borrow a Geiger counter and you can hold it up to your um, uh, your mother and uh, demonstrate to people that she's no more radioactive than your couch is. And I highly recommend that you do that. And um, she doesn't need to be deprived of the presence of her grandchildren at a time like this. So, All right. Now, if she ever has something where she's going to be a danger to other people or increase risk, and a lot of times it would be to kids, they will tell you that. Now, one thing that you can do, go with her to her radiation oncologist, and they will have a little pamphlet that says people who are getting radiation therapy are not radioactive. They all have stacks of them, and you can go and hand hand it nicely to your ex-wife. She is incorrect, but it doesn't mean that she's necessarily being malignant. Um, You know, I know how it is. I've got two ex-wives, so I, you know, I get it. But anyway, be nice. Show her, hey, everything's fine with the kids. All right? Very good. Okay, listen, uh, thanks. Always go to Dr. Scott when he's here, but he's not here, so F him. Uh, We can't forget Rob Sprantz, Bob Kelly, Greg Hughes, Anthony Cumia, Jim Norton, Travis Teft, Eric Nagel, Roland Campos, Sam Roberts, Pat Duffy, Dennis Falcone, Ron Bennington, Fez Watley, and Dandy Don Wicklin, whose early support of this show has never gone unappreciated. We appreciate the help Paul Ofcharsky gives us on the regular SiriusXM show. Speaking of SiriusXM, go to our SiriusXM show on the Faction Talk channel, SiriusXM channel 103, Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, on demand, most importantly, and other times at Don Wicklin's pleasure. Many thanks go to our listeners whose voicemail and topic ideas make this job very easy. And go to our website at drsteve.com for schedules and podcasts and other crap. Until next time, Check your stupid nuts for lumps. Quit smoking, get off your asses, and get some exercise. We'll see you in one week for the next edition of Weird Medicine.